0: If you would bow with me. Father, we are grateful for uh, the ability to gather and sit before your word. We ask for um, just the ability to focus this morning and to reflect on all that you've given us. Uh, We pray that we would, even in some of the difficulties of the passage we're studying this morning, we would see uh, your heart unfold before us uh, in a powerful way and that we would be changed. Lord, we need you to do that work by your spirit to open our hearts to see and to live in light of what you have said to us in Christ's name. Amen. You ever confused by the way God works in life? I mean, sometimes if you look throughout your life, you kind of wonder, like, what was he doing? You know, maybe you think, did I miss him or uh, it just there are things about situations that come up and you wonder uh, wh- what is he doing? I mean really I mean what is he accomplishing? what is he doing uh, we don 't always know exactly you know it's uh, I was reading a commentator this week and he said that uh, his dad wouldn 't allow whistling in their house growing up, and he always wondered like why won 't he let anybody whistle like i, I don 't understand and so he Uh, That was like against the rules. It really wasn't, I can't, you know, it's like sometimes you come to that place where you're like, I don't really understand and I don't know exactly why these things work the way in which they do. Uh, And yet there's these kind of things, not only in scripture, but also in life where you're like, man, I don't fully uh, understand how all that fits together, especially in the moment. I mean, it's just kind of uh, something I think we all have to see. In the moment, I don't always, you know, understand fully. But I think it's interesting because the life of Job, like early on, when I studied that, uh, I, you know, I tried to like make sense of it, and I realized it was in the wisdom literature. And so, being in the wisdom literature, I, I knew that it was to to kind of promote wisdom in me. And uh, one of the things about that. Uh, is as you come away from it and you look at Job's life and you're thinking about all the things going on with him, you realize like one of the things is that he had to just be silent and say, God is God and I'm not. And some of our griping and complaining or, you know, like anxiety or whatever you want to say, it comes down to the fact that we won't get to that place where we say, God is God, I'm not, and I need to be quiet. And I need to say, he rules, he reigns, he's in charge, he's accomplishing uh, his purposes. And so, first and second Samuel, if you were to just kind of say, what is this all about? God is establishing his monarchy. It starts with a rocky start, and then there's bumps along the way, but ultimately, we understand it would stand. God's plan, his purposes, they will stand. He, he's going to accomplish it. Through the line of David. You know, David is God's king. He's a man after God's own heart. But he was insufficient for the task. He just didn't live up to it. He did not accomplish the things uh, that, that perfectly that were to be accomplished. He was imperfect. And there were moments of folly that you're like, Man, I would love to erase that chapter if you were David. But ultimately, uh, he demonstrates traits of the king to come. And we're left kind of in hope, longing for uh, the king that would come that would truly bring about a blessing to uh, Israel and to the world. And so, uh, as we do this today, as you're looking at it, I want you to think back to chapter 21, and you remember there's this great calamity then, and then you pick up here, and it's really in the conclusion here that we're seeing another calamity, another thing that's like, oh my goodness, uh, people are, are dying, there's, there's trouble. And in both cases, David is kind of responsible for, for halting this troublesome time. Like God uses him in that way. And so, um, it's in both times, you see him ultimately uh, pursuing God, pursuing His will, seeking to do uh, what would honor and please God. Now... You might also just kind of note this, just a, a couple of things just to think about as we get started. Uh, this is a, a climax of First and Second Samuel. It leaks David kind of to the best of the past, but also it points to the future. And so both of those are, are taking place. It, he's going to sacrifice burnt offerings provided for him where Abraham had sacrificed. And then in the coming days, uh, this, this would be the site of the temple. And so both of those things are kind of pointing us to those realities and so i think it's important to kind of see that it's laying the groundwork now so what would we say if you're like let's bullet down tell me something i'm going to walk away with and understand today i would say this you don't always get what god is doing in the moment god's kingdom that he promised stands and it stands today like where you are in your life it stands god's king reigns and he stands and it's it is like God is orchestrating the events of history flawlessly and his kingdom will stand it will never end and in the midst of all this trouble we just have to say you know what over and over and over again God is portraying for us that even through like sin and all kinds of wicked deeds and activity God is sustaining uh, his world and he is keeping us to the end. So let's start in verse one. And really you could say in verses one through nine, it, it's uh, again, I, one author I like the way I think it was Davis who says he, he kind of outlines this, but he, he calls this the mystery of wrath. And this is an interesting thing for us because some of you maybe you like mysteries. Some of you may like to read books that are going to kind of they're leading up to this place and you love that or a movie. And you want to say, "Oh man, I like that." And and some of us like it too much. I mean, have you ever been around with somebody that you're like, "Dude, you're turning everything into some like mystery, and all this stuff's going on behind the scenes, and you know nobody understands it but you." And it's like, if that's the case, you know, you better back up a little bit. But but I do think it's interesting here because in verse one it says, "The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying." Go number Israel and Judah. It says again. So it's like, it's not the first time. If you were to come into my home and you were hanging out there, you would say, those boys again fired their dad up. Right? And and it, rightly so, most of the time, not usually just anger, just because like I have this fit of rage inside of me. It's just like, you keep like, you know, like picking at me, ultimately, you're going to wake me up, you know, it's like, but I mean, you understand like again and again and again, Israel's going to kind of do those things and God's righteous anger is woke up against them, you might say, it's kindled and he incited David against them. Now, here's another interesting thing, it's God is going to move David towards addressing this issue. And He's going to do so by having Him number Israel and Judah. Now, I I do want to say one other thing. There are um, some people that think of like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is different. You know, we would say to you, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? That's just a reality. And God's anger against sin... Is the same yesterday, today, and forever in in the sense that he hates sin, and so God is going to address sin because his people's obedience is not just an offense to him, but it it causes destruction to them. It, it's like it's it's destroying them. I mean, that's like saying to something, some someone, for instance, that. Is like a, a parent that doesn't really uh, tell their kids something. Well, let's say, they say, stop doing that, Johnny. And then Johnny goes off and does it, and then they get back into their conversation with someone or like caught back up in their phone. Stop doing that, Johnny. And then, they, you know, he's just doing Well, one day, if you really realize that behind that, it was, he was, they were saying, stop doing that, Johnny, because Johnny's playing in the road. And little Johnny doesn't really listen to anybody because mommy and daddy never really make him do anything. And then what happens one day when mommy is caught up just doing her thing and little Johnny is playing in the road? What would that be like for a car to come down that road and little Johnny... Never listening to any of the rules, does what he wants to do. Who would say that was a good idea? Would you think of that as a good idea of parenting that way? Where there's standards, rebellion, there's no like coming against them to enforce the standard? What kind of parenting is that? Is that love? No. And so God demonstrating love towards his people will. He will call them to an account. He will say to them, this is sin and sin demands that I must punish it. That's just a reality. To go against that is not just to break God's commands, but to be broken over them. So the Lord is going to exercise judgment, but here's where the... The mystery kind of is. If you were to turn to 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. How are you going to deal with that? You start out and say, God is doing this. Now you're saying, Satan did it. For somebody that loves to live in a world where they always think they understand Everything, they don't like this, right? But what you understand, I think it's just important to see, by the way, one great theologian said, you know what, Satan is God's devil. Y'all know that? I mean, God created all things. Satan didn't self-create. Right? So, in order to bring judgment against Israel, the Lord incited David to take a census. The writers attributing this action to the Lord is not contradictory to 1 Chronicles 21. Why is that? Because we know that God is over all authorities in heaven and earth. He reigns over all. From this position of utmost strength, the Lord apportions power to lesser beings to be used in enforcing the moral aspects of the created order. I mean, that's why you don't struggle with reading Job knowing that God said to Satan, Have you seen my servant Job? Right? Right? And so I think it is somewhat of a mystery at some level but then somewhat of a mystery revealed understanding that God is orchestrating the events of history both with human beings who are doing wicked things and superhuman beings doing those things. Now, I'll give you another example just so it because I think it's important to see. Genesis 45:5 says, "And now do not be distressed or angry" Joseph says to his brothers, do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So that, whether that's the angelic host or humans that you see as like really out to get you, <laughs> they just can't, I mean, they're just out, they're just everything. Whatever you look at and say, you know what, Joseph could have said God didn't have anything to do with me going over there to Egypt. That would not be true. But he could also say, my brother sold me into slavery and sent me over to Egypt. Both are true. Both are true. You say, well, that's really hard for me to hold in tension. Well, okay, join the crowd, right? God is orchestrating the events of history, and yet... There are superhuman and human factors in there that are not like outside of God's uh, decree, but they are acting in their own way in rebellion, and these brothers in in Joseph's story are culpable for it. Genesis fifty twenty, in that same story, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To keep you alive, basically is what he says. That's just, that's mind-blowing. So, that's hard, it's hard to understand sometimes, but let's move on, verses 2 through 4. So the king sends the, these people out, the, 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 the leader, Joab, out to count the people. And it was not like God prohibited them to take a census. It must have been tied to his motivation and manner. There, there's something going on there with David. That you know, sometimes when you do the right thing with the wrong heart, y'all ever done that? Probably not anybody in here has ever done the right thing with the wrong heart. I mean, in reality, when you read, like for instance, um, uh, like the Sermon on the Mount and the Pharisee sitting there and he's praying. Is that a right thing? Yes. And then he's like, God, I know I'm not like all these wicked people out there. You know? And he's standing up in front of everybody so they can see his prayers, you know, how steady you know. But I think it's important you can say you can, your motivation and manner for doing things can be twisted or broken. David sends them out, and uh, some people would say, well, what was his motive? Maybe, Maybe to kind of think about the greatness of his army. You know, like I said, sometimes I start with, it might even be giving. You started with this holy desire to give and to bless. But then behind it, you're thinking, well, look at all that I've done. Well, you just, in your heart, you just twisted the very thing that you said you were doing for the glory of God and the good of others. Right? So you understand that. It's a battle. Joab's even disturbed by it. Because he doesn't really understand, like, why would David be doing this? Could he not see the Lord kind of could do anything he wanted to with Israel? He would stand behind them and fight for them. In verses 5 through 9, though, you see in kind of a counterclockwise way, they're going to travel throughout the land. It's going to take them nine months and 20 days to get a census. Not too long ago, I didn't fill out one of the things that came in for me, like on the census, and I thought... They're not paying attention. Then they send me another thing, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I wasn't sure how to answer what they were asking me to do. But anyway, eventually I just filled it in and sent it in and thought, well, I mean, I don't even know if I answered that properly. But it's, it is one of those things. Back in those days, they had to travel around. It took them almost a year. And they come back. There's a, there's a clarity about how many there were of fighting, you could say, men. And uh, it's in that 1.3 million range there. So anyway, so we move on. So the first one is just like, man, I, I sometimes when God is uh, exercising His judgment, accomplishing His plans, even bringing trouble, you could say, in your life, you may not put it all together. There may be some things where you're like, man, I don't see how that could be worked out. But you have to see behind all the actions of God of of both the spiritual realm and the earthly realm, God is working. Now we go to verse 10, and you're going to move in this section, and this guy calls it the warmth of mercy. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So David, again seeing what's taking place you're thinking like is the, the lord not got gui- those lord seem to be guiding him but and we not just don't get we're not given all of the information we just know that whatever david did in that moment uh, again like he, in some level he was tempted and walked into that temptation and, and at some point in there there was like i said whether the manner or the motive we don't we're not given all that but he knows in his heart, like he has clearly seen, he has sinned against the Lord. And so he says, I have done wrong. And he says, please take away my iniquity. Now, when you're moving into this realm, when you're seeing this, I just think one of the things personally for us is to say, do you regularly find yourself doing that? Just I mean, are there times where you feel like, man, I have been able to see my sin clearly, and at other times in my life, I almost think that I never sin. You know? It, it likely, someone who really thinks that they're not really sinning much, those people have a very low view over time of God's holiness, and therefore, like a very uh, low view of their need for the cross. Because they're pretty good people in their minds, you know. But I think the closer you are to the Lord, the more clearly your need for God to rescue you from your sin is. The closer you are to understanding the holiness of God, the greater the cross becomes. You think, I need a big cross. People that are not really that sinful in their own eyes need a small cross because they're They're there, and why would they need a very big cross? They're a pretty good guy, pretty good person. God would accept them kind of, you know, mentality. David sees his sin, and he understands the fierce nature of it, how horrendous it is, the weight of it, and he wanted that to go away. And the Lord sends a prophet, as we've seen before. This is different than before, where David's like kind of, kind of, shucking off his sin, not thinking about it, and a prophet comes and tells him a story and reveals his sin. In this case, David is at this place where he is sensing this now. He wants the Lord to take it away. And David sends, I mean, God sends a prophet to David. The prophet says, look, there's three things that can be done. I mean, here are the three. There can be three years of famine, three months of fleeing from Uh, One of your foes or three days of pestilence. There they are. And so, how does David respond? David is broken over it. He's heartbroken. He just can't, I mean, he can't stand to see what's taking place. But he knows one thing. And this is really important, too, for us to understand. Hopefully, you kind of get this. But it's, look at verse 14. I am in great distress let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. He does not want to be left in the hands of men. He's been there before, and certainly we know behind all of that God is working, but He's thinking, I just want to be, if, if someone is going to give me a spanking, let it be. This merciful God. It it just, that's what drives him. He just wants the Lord alone to be the one to bring it about. And so, what we see is, in this distressful situation, David thought about the numerous mercies of God and the greatness of it, and he says, let that be the case. And so, what happens is, is, this pestilence will fall on them. Now, um, one other thing, just to kind of think about, is this. This person writing about this says, "Must you not have your best theology for your darkest moments?" Just remind us of that, Lord. That's what you might say. In my darkest moments, when things are, they seem like so, like um, insurmountable. Let the thing that I do is hold on to a right understanding of you. Here's here's the thing. Some of you here today are just coasting. I mean, that's just reality. Everything's kind of good right now. You're like on cruise control. But it's not always going to be that way, right? I mean, it's just, it's not. I mean, it's coming. Trouble, you're, you're, you're going to face times where you're just like, I don't. I don't even know what to do. I feel like somebody like spun me. And then I, I wake up and, I'm trying, and, and then I'm in the dark. And I'm, I'm like stumbling in the dark. And in those moments, you want to know, and, and when you cannot think that clearly, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, maybe the only thing on your mind is, Lord, remind me of a hymn. Remind me of a psalm. Remind me of something that declares who you are so that I can see you clearly. And in that moment, make the decision to move towards you. That's what David does. I will press in to this God who certainly is going to, he is going to punish. But I'm going to press into him because I know ultimately he is merciful. So, verses 15 through 17, this pestilence hits and 70,000 men die. And then in verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough, now stay your hand. And then verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This kind of makes you think David may not have even known everything going on. You understand that? Like We know that God's anger was kindled against Israel. David may not have even grasped all of that. All he could see in the moment was In this census, there were things he did wrong and he felt guilty for it. And he says, Lord, I want that to be done and uh, done away with. And so God is orchestrating in the events of David this thing of bringing judgment upon Israel and at the same time working things in David that he did not fully grasp. He just didn't know all that he was doing. And so in this moment, We see God's mercy. We see David's heart being refined. We see his desire for the people. We see him wanting the best for them. Have you ever met a leader that never really wanted the best for the sheep? Whatever those may be, you could say, well, that's figurative for a lot of things. In this case, it's the people of God. But in that case, it's just like, I mean, in other cases, you could look at it and you think, like, who are you for? Because if, if you're always for number one, what, what, is that, what is that like? I mean, sometimes you'll meet a, a, a parent that way, and you think, like, Ann and I were talking about the other night, where uh, there was this, this guy who's a really successful guy now, very famous, but he was just saying with his mom, she never, she was never there. She wasn't for them, she didn't live her life thinking about them that she had been giving this these children and she thought nothing of them they had to find their own food all those kinds of things but in this case what we see is God's mercy on display in judgment and we see uh, David's heart for these people he speaks of the people as sheep and he seeks to take up on himself the the really he wants himself to face the trouble not them. Verse 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. So what do we see? We see here God saying, Okay, make atonement for them. Blood has to be shed. And that's important because there's pictures of that that we're going to think about when we think about a greater David and the sacrifice that had to be made third section you see the, the the necessity of the atonement verses 23 through i mean sorry verse 20 through 25 so david goes to this place he meets this man arana and that man he comes to david face to the ground he comes up to david and he says uh what what can i do for you basically and, the, and david says i must have, make an altar and he says you can have whatever you want and david says no I must pay for that. It must cost me something. I'm going to offer this before the Lord. It's going to cost me something. And I'm going to spill the blood of these animals. I'm going to build this altar before the Lord. And I'm going to do this um, as it ought to be done. And that's what you see in verses 20 through 25. David said the offering must cost him. And it did cost him. And then he offered before the Lord the sacrifice necessary for the atonement needed for the people so that's the whole picture so go through that with me real quick remember you're thinking about that we're saying okay let's go back you think as you look at verses one through nine just notice it you think man god is bringing wrath upon israel he is using this the the means of david to do this in david doing what he is called to do David sins but you think about it, in the midst of David's sin, and God's wrath being poured out upon the people, God shows mercy. And he shows mercy in a very powerful way as he stays his hand. And then it's followed by, you say, well, how is God's mercy demonstrated through this atoning sacrifice? So now let's put it all together. You ready? So we're looking at first and second Samuel. We're concluding it. Let's say this. One thing, just to kind of put it together. David had the heart of a shepherd to the sheep. That's just one aspect of this. David is foreshadowing someone that had a heart for the sheep. He's foreshadowing the actions of Jesus, the ultimate son of David, who gave sacrificially on the hill called Calvary. He did that. That's the climax of the whole of history. This greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a shepherd to the people he will offer himself he will lay down his life he will give himself in sacrificial service to the people david's sacrifice stopped a physical plague but jesus sacrifice is stopping the plague of sin and here's the thing about sin and nobody kind of sees it all you know none of us would see it but But, you know, just looking at things maybe, we just couldn't really put it all together. But the reality is, is that sin infects the whole human race. And you look out across it and you say, I see people sinning or transgressing what we know to be right and good. I see all the cost of that. I see death and disease and disorder and rebellion. I see it all the time. And when you stop and think about that and you say, how in the world could this be stopped? The Bible has one answer. Jesus laid down His life. That's the answer. As a sacrificial lamb, He laid down His life to rescue all who would believe in Him. He Himself, the Scripture says, bore our sins in His body. He didn't just sacrifice an animal. And that's what Hebrews says. The sacrifice of animals doesn't really atone for sin he laid down willingly laid down his life he became a substitute for us where we deserve to die he died in our place if you are here today and you're saying you know what i want to i want to be like david and make an atonement for my sins i want to make sure i cover them go show me the bulls and goats get them out let me have them i want to cut them up there i want to i want to set this uh, this uh, uh, an altar before the lord and set the wood on fire i want to do that the bible clearly says that does not truly cleanse us from our sins but jesus did that he was the ultimate and final sacrifice the only one that could Truly satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. If you are here today in, in the hearing of these words, that's what someone needs to say to you. And that's what I'm saying to you. You want hope. You want security. You want to experience life with God. You want to be restored. You want the wrath of God to be satisfied. The only way that could be done is through Christ. And it was accomplished And you and I are to enter into that, trusting in what he says he came to do. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay, he says, and then I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So what do we say? We say the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate king, the one who came to rescue us What does he say? You sheep out there, listen. There's a shepherd who's come, and he has come to protect you, and he protects you by offering his life as a sacrifice to save you from your sins. What David could not do, because David, a sinner, David, just a man, what he could not do, Jesus did. And you and I can have hope in that. In this passage, you see wrath wrapped in mercy. That's what Galatians 3.13 speaks of. In Christ's cross, the wrath of God against sin is clearly revealed, but wrapped in mercy because born by Christ in our place. That ought to fill us with gratitude. So this morning, that ought to be the thing. The thing that you remember as you look at the book of Samuel and you think about all that's going on there, you say all of this is pointing to the great hope that a shepherd king would come. He would lay down his life so that you and I might have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would help us see our Savior and Lord. We ask that for those who are here today who have never heard His voice, We pray that they they would hear that today. That they would hear the shepherd calling. That they would hear him saying to them, I came to lay down my life for you, that through me you might have forgiveness of sins. That God's wrath might be satisfied. That you might be welcomed in as adopted children into the kingdom. That you might be shepherded forever. I pray lord today for those who are here outside of christ by the spirit's power we pray that you would open their blind and deaf ears to hear and to see and to accept it and to hold fast to it and to not trust in false shepherds of this world but trust in the one true shepherd of souls the savior the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal King who reigns forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen.